0: You have the coverage. Oh, I know. What's wrong with me? All your medical people, what's wrong with me? All right, right, very smart. Water on the brain. Maybe I ought to give the roses to Bob. He's smarter than anybody else in here this morning. But anyway, hey, we're going to start 2 Corinthians chapter 9 couple of good things about that. First one is I can't wait to get in chapter 9 because chapter 8 and 9 go together. But the second thing is every chapter we get done here, which I'm not hurrying through this, we get closer to what? Proverbs. Oh, the book of Proverbs. I'm looking forward to that. I told you that this is the second chapter. Chapter 8 and 9 go together on the book of the heart of the minister. I really enjoyed Jeff's message last week. I always enjoy when Jeff preaches. He just does a great job and. Uh, Uh, I really enjoyed uh, hearing him last week, and uh, he tied so much in. He had no idea where I'm at, what I'm doing. It's just the Holy Spirit of God. But uh, that was a great sermon last week, and it kind of fits, dovetails into what uh, we're going to talk about today. You remember that I told you in chapter 8 and 9 that God in this book that really deals with the handbook of ministry gave us two chapters on probably the key to everything that we do uh, in ministry and uh, it's the fact that our heart being devoted to God and uh, given to God, and so it deals with the heart of the minister. Simply uh, understanding and giving back to God based on our understanding and realization of what God gave to us. In our first chapter, chapter 8, a couple of weeks ago, I I gave you probably uh, an incredible Bible principle that I hope that you not only put in your Bible, but uh, you need to commit it to memory, and it's in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. What a great verse that is. And uh, in, in reality, you know, in the Christian life or the ministry or whatever, whatever you want to try to accomplish as a child of God, that verse is the key to it. Because it all goes back to our attitude of heart of what God uh, has done for us. And I said it before, God who had everything, God who was the aristocracy of heaven, God who had everything that, uh, all to him, all honor, all glory, all of the creation. The Bible says in Colossians chapter one that all things were created by him and for him. He had it all. And yet he gave it up because he simply saw that the need of, that I had and the need that you had was greater than all he had. If that thought ever sinks into your life, There'll be no stopping you. And the reason why so many of God's people never do anything for God is because they never understand that great concept. The fact that God gave it all up because he simply saw that our need was greater than what he had. And that verse then forms the basis of our giving our heart to God simply based on understanding that great truth. I also told you that there's two chapters, that these two chapters are uh, continually used by pastors to try to force you and intimidate you into giving money. These two chapters, for all my life in the ministry, I've heard that every time anybody wants to hit anybody up for money or get them to feel bad about not giving, this is what they do. This is where they go and try to use these verses. And, uh, you know, I... I I know the chapter is is built around the offering that they they gave uh, and took up for the suffering saints of Jerusalem. I know that. That's true. We've talked about that. But uh, money is not what this great chapter is about. The principle is very clear in chapter 8 and also very clear in chapter 9. The Bible says that before they gave a dime, before they did anything, they gave of themselves first. And it brings back that uh, God didn't want their money no more than God wants your money. What God wanted from them is exactly what he wants from you. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to surrender your life to be and do everything that God wants you to do. And you know what happens, and this is human nature is true. Uh, it, it, always, it always holds true. It always goes this way. You know, uh, when, you, uh, when you're not giving all of yourself to God and, you know, you don't get into the plan of God and the will of God, and we all, human nature always does this, then what we do is we go to church, get a Bible, and then we our life, we give God what we don't want, and we keep the most important for ourselves, and then we pretend like we're doing God a great service, and that that's what we do every time, every time. And chapter eight is a great chapter with some great principles that we laid out. But today we're going to move into another great chapter as we are now more than halfway through uh, this great book, which is the Handbook of ministry. I personally believe that, you know, we started this book right around the time that God gave us Restart and right around the time that God gave us all this. And look what God has done now with the turnaround of uh, ministry, the opportunity to have hundreds of people, young men and young ladies, the prime of their life, who, yeah, made a mistake in life, but want to change their life and turn it around. And you and I both know the only way they're going to turn around, really, is that book and uh, where else they're going to get it but here. So that's, that's much where it's at, and God just keeps blessing us and keeps giving us things, and we just keep taking it and doing what we can do with it. So we're going to move into this, into this great book today, and I want to read for you chapter 9. Oh, maybe we'll read the first eight verses, and then we'll, we'll show you some things here that I think that will help you today. He says this, For us touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the frowardness of your mind, <coughs> for which I boast of, of you to them of Macedonia and Archea, was ready a, a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting be of you should be in vain on this behalf, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, uh, that we say not ye, uh, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof you had noticed before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver." And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you today for <clears throat> the time we've set aside. We love you. We ask you to help us uh, glean out of here all that you have for us. We just thank you for the continual blessings you just keep putting in our life and giving us and the opportunities of ministry and, Lord, uh, I thank you for the young men and young ladies, the moms and dads, and, uh, and all the folks, Lord, that rise to the occasion, that they just want to continue uh, either on the front line support or the, in the rear, supporting with all of the things that we need, that we on the front lines can get the job done. Everybody doing their part, and we thank you for that. We pray your blessings today. May uh, the folks that have dedicated their lives to understanding and working with people and the problems in their life, may they glean the great principles out of here or those, Lord, that just want to put their own life together or learn the great general principles of life and, and the happiness and what we need to do with God, uh, may they get a benefit from it. And at When it's all said and done, Lord, we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in this passage, there's some great truths here. In fact, in this passage, is probably the single, when I say it, probably the single greatest verse in the Bible for a Christian in this passage here. Without a doubt. I don't know of another verse that is more important to anybody as a child of God than the verse that's found in here, and we'll get to it here in a little bit, uh, <clears throat> one that every Christian certainly should memorize. But before I do that, and we kind of get into this, I want to kind of give you a context. I don't like just to go through and, uh, and tell you what the verses mean. I like you to get an understanding of what's happening in the storyline. I know many of you are putting those in your Bible, so down the line, if you ever teach 2 Corinthians, you'll have pretty much the storyline, or you even study it, you'll pretty much have a handle on it. Now, he's saying in verse 1 through 5, and it's kind of complicated when you read it, but I'll break it down for you. Here's what he's saying. He says that I have sent Titus and Timothy. He doesn't name them here, but we knew that Titus and Timothy were going to be sent down from chapter 8, if you remember. And what he's saying here is simply this. I have sent Titus and Timothy ahead of, of, of my getting there. Paul's getting there. And he says, I'm sending them down to collect the offering that you have taken up for the saints at Jerusalem. And then he's careful here. And he says, I'm not sending them down because I'm greedy. Or I'm not sending them down because I just want to get my hands on the money, which is about what 98% of the pastors would do today. He says, that's not the reason I'm sending them down. <clears throat> He says, I'm sending them down so that when I get there, we don't have to waste the time to get it all together because of the urgency of the saints in Jerusalem. He's simply saying in verse 3, I want to make sure that it's ready to go so when I get there, we can get it to them without any delay because of the urgency of the struggle that they're going through. That's basically what he's saying there so you get the storyline. And then there's a word there. uh, There's a word there in verse 1, super flurious. And... That's a big $25 word for sure. It simply means more than enough. I don't know. I always mark that. There are some words in the Bible that sometimes we're not familiar with. And when I find out what they were years ago, I marked every one of them just so I would know them. And I think you ought to do that too. But it simply means more than enough. He's saying, here's what he's saying. He said, I've said enough about this subject. Uh, I've said enough about this matter. Any more being said about it would not be necessary or would be superfluous. Superfluous means I've said enough. It doesn't need to be anything more said about it. Uh, 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 Most pastors need to learn that. Uh, Most pastors keep on talking when there's nothing less to be said, and that's always a problem. Uh, But he says uh, superfluous is the good word. And then I want to draw your attention to verse 2. And this is a great principle. And this is something I want you to, uh, uh, so many of you, I want you to see today. I wish I could pull about 20 of you aside and just screw up the top of your head and show you how God has used you in so many people's lives in such a short time. Uh, I I just, uh, I'm on Woody and Kelly's volleyball team and Anna did her devotion last night and Anna's only been saved a little over a couple of years. And yet it was one of the finest devotions that you'd, anybody's ever given. I mean, it was right where it needed to be. And I, there's about 20 or maybe 25 of you, maybe 30 of you, I don't know, that are, that are being, you're not, you're not up on that level yet where some of the other people are. But boy, you're in that mid-range. But I want to tell you something. God is really using you. And I, want, and I know that you don't see it. Uh, it's hard for you to see in our own lives God doing something because we're always with ourselves, <laughs> you got to kind of step back and see it. But I want to tell you, there's about 20 or 30 of you in here that uh, that, 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 are, that are what this verse is talking about. And your life has, and you don't even know it. You don't even see it. And I wish I could just get you aside someplace and screw off the top of your head and, and dump a can of what I want to talk to you about into your brain to get you to see it. But maybe that, maybe that wouldn't be good either. Maybe you got to find it out in, in God's time. But I want to talk about this principle here in verse 2, and it's a great one. He says, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Now, Christians, our job is to provoke each other. I love the word provoke here. The word provoke means call into action. It means to excite, to motivate, to move with passion. And I love the way he says this. He says, your zeal hath provoked very many. Christians ought to provoke each other unto good works. When you get excited about the things of God and it's real in your life, other people will get excited about it because your pastor Mel Sabaka used to say all the time, and uh, uh, many of you who were back in those days when you heard him preach, he used to say it. He says, if your Christianity is not contagious, then It's contaminated. And your job and my job is to provoke other Christians to good works. The zeal that you have for the Lord, and you don't even know it many, many times. You know, our church has been built on that very concept. There's some of you here today that you're sitting here with your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad, your grandparents, uh, your whole family uh, basically is part of this church. And yet when it started, you know what it started with? It started with you. It started with you struggling in your own life was you going to do what God wanted you to do. And you made the right choice, and you did the right thing. And you know what? You fell in love with the book. You loved the Word of God. You got excited about the Word of God. You got a zeal for the Word of God. And God took that zeal and provoked many. That's the way he does it. Our whole church is building up. That. <clears throat> That's why this Operation Turnaround will be a piece of cake for us because you give me 30 or 40 men and women who have a zeal for God, put them with somebody who wants to do right but doesn't know how to do right, put them with somebody who wants to change their life but doesn't have the wherewithal to do it, and when they see your zeal, when they see your commitment, when they see your love for God and your dedication to something, it's going to be everything that God's going to need to provoke them to good works, and they're going to get saved. You're going to make a difference in their life. This church and I'm not taking any credit for anything that I do, but I will tell you this. No church will be any better than the pastor's zeal and passion for what he does. If I I didn't love the book and was excited about the book, most of you wouldn't be. Many of you came from dead churches. Many of you came from churches where you had more zeal than the pastor did, and it got you in trouble. That's what always will happen. You see, the problem with so many of you, and I love you all, but the problem is so many of you the difference between me and you, I just never got over the day I got saved. And it was for almost 45, 50 years ago. I never have gotten over the day God changed my life. I never have. There's, I've not done everything right, and I made some boneheaded choices and decisions. But I'm telling you... There was a never a day in my life that I never forgot what he did for me. And even when I was messed up and screwed up in times of my life, I knew I was wrong and I knew he was right. And I knew that that book had all the answers. When you get to that place in your life, you're going to affect people. You're going to provoke many to good works. You're going to have a, a thing where you, it changes people's lives. Provoke is a great word. When you get excited about the things of God, other people get excited. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. When you love that book, it shows. When you care about people, it shows. And so when God takes you and puts you with some Ethiopian eunuch someplace and he brings you two together and you spend some time, he's lost, he's looking. He's looking for the light. He's looking for truth. God is going to provoke him through your good works. And your zeal. That's the way you build a church. There's no one man that builds a church. There's no one person who, uh, one family who, uh, uh, and you see that so many times. Somebody's a big giver or somebody's very important in the city and the whole church pastor builds it around that person. You never build a church around one person. You build a church around a book and then you let people fall in love with that book. They get a zeal for God and then it provokes many to good works. That's what you do. That's how you build a church. When you stir people up, it stirs people to get into the word of God. And preaching's a great example of that. It's, it's a great example of that. If I said it before, if a pastor's not excited about the Bible, if he's not, if he's not passionate about the things of God, he'll never get anybody else to be. If a pastor's always negative, if he's always down, if he's always wimping around, if he's always this with his tail between his legs, that's always gonna produce. Wimps produce wimps, real men produce real men. Sorry, ladies, you concluded in that. <clears throat> Doth not yet appear what you shall be. <clears throat> but along with that, I mean there's two sides to every coin. And there's three coins in the fountain. That's a great song. You just are out of it today. I can't help you with it. <laughs> but when you provoke the people to do good works, you know what? Somehow, down? you've got to deal with this in dealing with people. Now, many of you want to work with people, and I'm, I'm excited about that. And I'm pumping everything I know into you, and it's a great deal. But I'm going to tell you something. One of the things you better learn and one of the things you better grasp is that when you provoke people to do good works, sometimes, many times, it has a negative effect you see it all the time you're paying attention. I mean, when, when I preach a message on living for God and being separate and giving your life to God and staying away from the world and the things of the world and all the things that go along with it, just step back sometime and watch which way it provokes people. Sometimes it provokes people to love God and get in that book and leave the world. Sometimes it provokes them to get mad at the truth and stay with the world. But it goes either way. You know, we're going to get into this in the book of Proverbs in a great way. But you know that Bible is written to and written around two people? And that two people is defined in the book of Proverbs. And the whole, it starts in Proverbs, it works through Psalms, and it goes through Ecclesiastes, and it goes through the whole Bible. The Bible is written in a practical sense, in a practical sense. The Bible's written to two men, a wise man and a foolish man. I mean, it's just that simple. It talks about a wise man and a foolish man. And then it defines them in the book of Proverbs. If you're a wise man, we'll call you the good guys, you love truth. truth to you is like eating strawberries and ice cream. You love truth. You love the things of God. You have a passion for it. But the mixed multitude, the other crowd, will always get provoked the wrong way. And I'm telling you right now, I want you to understand, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I always like to know where I stand. I don't like surprises. I like to know what I'm up against. And when I deal with people, I just assume somebody say, Bob, I'm with you, I'm going to help you. And somebody else say, Bob, I ain't going to do a thing around here, but I'm just going to come to church. I can appreciate that. I could live with that very clearly just knowing what I got. I'm just that kind of guy. I mean, you know what? You go out there and you get... You get, go to Starbucks and you get some of the god-awfulest coffee you ever saw in your life. You get that mocha cream, upside down, whatever it is. I just take mine black, thank you. I'm a simple man. My name is Bob. Leader among men, I told you it meant last week. Stander for truth. I watch you guys eat ice cream. You make some of the scoopiest, goofiest stuff when you go eat ice cream. You get this pepper lament, whatever it is, or marshmallow, whatever it is. I'm a chocolate and vanilla guy. That's all I need. If they had chocolate and vanilla in Walmart and life, I could get along just fine, wouldn't need anything else. Because I'm a simple guy. To me, it's black and white. I, I, don't, I don't get real complicated with things because I'm not a very complicated person. I have a hard time understanding a lot of things, and I, I just learned over the years to let God show it to you, but, but it's not complicated. It's not complicated. I mean, I just as soon have people say, Bob, I'm with you, man. I want to serve you, serve God. Let's go get it done. Somebody else said, Bob, I love you a lot, and I'm good, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to come. I can live with that. i just like to know what I got. The mixed multitude crowd will always get provoked the wrong way, and, and that's a good thing because it shows us where we're at. And I don't ever get mad at those people. It ain't like I think they're terrible people. I just think you're worldly people. And that's just where it's at. You see, I, I told you this before. I confessed this to you a couple of 30 nights ago. I have a real passion for ministry. And, and some of you do too. And the difference, as I said earlier on, between me and you is I never got over mine the day I got saved. Some of you have. And that cast of passion will have an effect. It will provoke people, but it'll provoke people two ways. Some of you folks that I'm talking about, and I wouldn't call your name out this morning because I wouldn't want to embarrass you, that you have let the Lord use you and to bring in your families and your aunts and your uncles and your brothers and your sisters and your, your dog and your cat and canary and everybody else. You know what? You did that because you allowed God. You got on fire for God. You got a zeal for God. And uh, God provoked many with your zeal. But you know what? I guarantee you. If I could have you guys get up and tell the story and tell it out right now, I guarantee you there's just as many people in your family that don't like you because of it this morning who love you. At some point in life, you've got to realize that your job is to have a zeal for God and put that zeal out and then let the chips fall where they fall. You can't make everybody happy. You just can't. And I gave up a long time trying to. I just do what the Bible says, love people unconditionally, try to help them any way I can, and the rest of it takes care of themselves. But I, I, I think it's a good thing because it'll force people to either get in or get out. And I think that's a good thing. And I, and I know when you start talking like that, we are such a lovey-dovey Christianity. Here's most churches today. That's not here. That's. This lovey dovey, we all get along, let's hold hands, kumbaya. It doesn't work that way in the real world. Now, both my shoulders are out of joint, and I have to <laughs> preach in pain the rest of the service this morning. And I know somebody says, Well, I just don't understand how he would say such a thing because it's true. It's true. I told you a couple of weeks ago that, that, uh, that good people who commit to the ministry, they never leave good churches. Uh, in fact, I got a phone call this week, and she's here this morning, and I won't embarrass you, but I got a phone call this week, and a lady called me on the phone, and she says, you're right, you're right. Oh Bob, you're right. You're right. Well, tell me something I don't know. I said, I'm always right. What do you what do you want? What are you talking about? She says, you were right. She says, you said last week, or last time I preached, you said that good people never leave good churches and, and, and worthless people or bad. I don't even know what I said. Bad people are the only ones to leave good churches. You were right. You were right. You were right. I didn't believe you when you said that, but you're right. She says, I went and got my my directory that was done two or three years ago. And I got me a red pencil. And I went through and marked all the people that are not here anymore. And you know what? When I got done and flipped the pages, you were right. <laughs> so we're selling red pencils for a penny apiece this morning. <laughs> people get in or people get out. I mean, it's just the way that it works. They get mad at Truth. And then they find another church that they won't go to. They find another church they're not going to get involved in. I had a guy call me. This has been, oh, I don't know, maybe two years ago. I don't know. I, can't, I lose track of time. When he turn 70, it's kind of hard to remember all those things. <laughs> he called me one time, and he was really provoked. In this case, I had done my job well. <laughs> and he says, I'm not happy with things at the church, and I'm not happy with you. And I said, well, okay, I understand. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. He says, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm leaving the church. I'm not coming back. And I said, okay. I said, no, I knew this guy. I said, okay. And I said, I'll, I'll inform your prayer group leader that you're not longer going to be in prayer group. Whose prayer group are you in? Well, I'm not in one. I said, okay. then I'll, I'll inform the person that you're in charge of the ministry, your ministry, you know, discipleship, a restart, uh, whatever we do, uh, who are who, who you working with? Why well, I'm working with anybody? And I said, then what's the point? What do I care if you don't come back? I mean, if, you're, if you don't do anything and you're not going to be a part of anything, what is this big da 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 da? I'm not coming back to church. So what? You know, I, I don't like cowboy movies. But my favorite cowboy movie, and I know I'm going to get a big amen on this one because I know you like it too. Now, I do like. The old one with John Wayne. Tie a yellow ribbon. Horse soldiers. But I'm not a cowboy guy. I'm not. But my favorite cowboy movie, and I know you're going to know this now, and I, if all you that love this movie, now's the time to speak up. Tombstone. Oh, yeah. Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer, huh? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's it. And yet I got to tell you, you know what makes that movie? It's the one-liners in that movie. I mean, you got Doc Holliday, who's a drunk and a whoremonger and everything in the world. And you got Ike Clanton, who's the same thing. But Doc Holliday is educated, speaks Latin. He's a doctor. Ike Clanton couldn't find his socks in the morning. I mean, he's just a dope. And the idea that Doc Holliday, Ike is so tough, but Doc Holliday, maybe he's got tuberculosis and he couldn't win in a fight but he's 10 times smarter than the other guy. I love it when he challenges Ike to a spelling contest. <laughs> <laughs> I like when Ringo gets up and does his, yeah. does his yeah. things like that, you know, and Doc Soliday is standing there watching him, you know, and everybody, yeah, 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 and he puts it down there. And what does he do? He knows he can't do that. So what does he do? He makes him look like a fool. He takes his little whiskey cup. <laughs> and... Completely undoes everything that he did. See, I like that. But my favorite line is what he says to Ike Clanton when he says, "Well, Ike, I, 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 I just don't know what I'll do if you won't be my friend." <laughs> you know what I said to that guy on the phone? I won't tell you his name. We'll call his name was. Never mind. I won't tell you his name. I don't want to even get close to it. I said, and "I said, I said, well, you know what?" I, 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 I don't know what I'll do if you won't come to my church. <laughs> Provoke them. I mean, what really changes if you decide you're not coming back anymore other than we got an extra sheet. Really? And I don't say that for anybody to leave. I don't want anybody to leave. I'm not trying to get anybody to leave. I'm just telling you. The bottom line is, when you preach the truth or when you live your life, it's going to provoke people one way or the other. And I preached all the time people get provoked. I walk down the street, people get provoked. I'm sure when I wake up in the morning across this country, people get provoked. And Paul said, and your zeal hath provoked very Many. When you, through your commitment to Christ and your separated lifestyle, provoke people to good works, that's a good thing. And in that same lifestyle based on truth and the Word of God, when it pokes people to get mad at you and mad and provokes them the wrong way, that's a good thing. You know why? Because the Bible is about a wise man and a foolish man. That's why. I mean, that's just the way it goes. I mean, we got a lot of medical people in here. we got a lot of medical people in here. I watch some of you people. I watch some of you people wash your hands a 100 times a day because you know that you know what happens. You touch a door. You touch a car. You touch this. You forget, and next thing you know, you got AIDS. I mean, it's just like that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, yeah. I mean, I know, I watch you guys. I guarantee you, and I, I'll tell you what, let's be honest today. Let's be honest. How many of you women in your purse right now have a bottle of hand sanitizer? May I see your hand? There we go. There we go. My daughter, Jamie, she goes to a motel. She takes her own bedding, strips the bedding, takes it off, her own pillows. She won't sleep in a motel in the bed. She took one time, we had a canoe trip, and I got to tell you, the place we stayed was not the best place in the world. She wore her shoes to the canoe trip, wore them in the thing, and then threw them shoes away because they had walked on that carpet. Now, that's a little extreme, but that's what my, my point. I watch you folks. I, you go into every store, and there's a little bottle there. You go to a hospital. They're all through the things. You go, you're not satisfied with that. You have to carry your own. You wash your hands 40 times a day. You shake hands with somebody, you know, and they got look like they just come out of a tuberculosis ward and you over there, nice to see you. You already got it out, man. I know how it works. But you know what I would, I would wish, honestly? I'd wish some of you folks would take care of washing your heart as much and fast and as often as you do washing your hands. You'll see my daughter go into a building after she washes her hands. She elbows her way in. I didn't know you could open a whole door with your elbow. She can. I watched some of you wash your hands 20, 30, 40 times a day. You carry all kinds of standing, and you got the thing, you got the living water right here that you want to wash your heart 100,000 times a day, and you won't do it. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. I mean, I I saw YouTube this week. And I I, I get a lot of uh, World War II stuff on there where they they go back to the battlefields that were fought. And they, oh, it's incredible stuff. They do, they show the picture where it was then and where it is now. Oh, it's incredible stuff. And I don't, I guess when you get on YouTube, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants to send you stuff on YouTube. I got this YouTube video of a woman who had a 300-pound tumor in her. And she was no bigger than Jamie. How a woman that size has a 300-pound tumor when a woman doesn't weigh more than 90 pounds, I don't know. But it showed a picture. It showed the movie. I couldn't watch the movie. That was the ugliest, grossest thing I ever saw in my life. But then I thought about it. And you medical people here, we're talking about the church. We're talking about wise people, foolish people. We're talking about provoking people, good or bad. I'm going to tell you something. We're talking about getting in or getting out, and the Word of God will do that. But let me ask you something, you medical people, we got nurses here today, we got, uh, you know, I'm a trained physician, we got people here all over the place today. Let me ask you a question, what does the doctor, what do you think the doctor told this woman when he said, you got a 300 pound tumor inside of you? You think he said, let just check it in another year? <laughs> she had a tumor in her that was 300 pounds, and that thing was cancerous. You know what the doctor tells her? You know what he tells you. You know, you nurses know exactly what that doctor's going to say. You don't even have to be a nurse to know. He's going to say, let's cut it out of the body. Let's get it out. You know why? Because if you leave the tumor in the body and it's cancerous, it affects everything else in the body. Well, what do you do when you get a 200-pound tumor or 180-pound tumor or 120-pound tumor in the body of Christ? Anybody. Cut it out. Thank you very much. Amen. Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, we're going to do surgery here any second. I'm telling you. And I don't know what's so hard about that. I mean, if a man preaches the truth to you of what God did for you and what you should do for him and you develop a zeal for God and you love God and you love truth, I'm not saying you all got to resign whatever you're doing and go out and be a missionary tomorrow, but I am saying you understand in your heart what God did for you and you get that in your heart and that passion begins to build into your life. I'm going to tell you something. What does it matter what any man says to you as long as it's truth? Great verse, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7. Bible says, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb. The full soul loatheth the honeycomb. Full of the world. But to the hungry soul, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. You want truth. You don't care what a man says to you. You want truth. You don't care how it rubs you the wrong way. If you know you're wrong and that's right and it's truth, you love truth. Wise people will embrace truth. Wise people will love truth. Wise people, godly people, good people will apply truth. Foolish people don't. Bad people don't. And Paul said in verse 2, your zeal hath provoked very many. And that's always a good thing, whichever way it goes. And that is a great verse. And some of you are living that verse as I speak this morning. And I want you to know I am proud of you. I'm proud of you. Now, look at verse 6, 7, and 8 here. And uh, here's some more great material. Well, this thing is loaded with them. Verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which uh, soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now, that, take that verse right there if you don't have it marked in your Bible, and what you want to put next to that is Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. And then you want to go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and put uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Because Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. These two verses form one of the universal laws in the Bible, and there's seven of them. there are seven laws in the Bible that everything runs by, everything. Every man, every woman, nature, the animals, everything. And one of those seven laws is the law of sowing and reaping. And there are seven absolute laws in which all life and laws of nature are all based and bound in the Word of God to follow. And Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, he shall also reap. And verse 6 says, But this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bound shall reap also bountifully." Boy, those are two great principles. They really are. And knowing and understanding how they work and how they play into your life and the lives of others is a great key to a lot of things in your Bible. You know, our whole world operates on laws. We don't see it because they're invisible laws. But you go to KCI Airport and you see a a plane uh, sitting on a runway. That plane is sitting on a runway being held down by gravity. You get in that plane, the pilot taxis down to the end of the runway, gets on the runway and gets the clearance to go, pushes those throttles forward. He starts to go about 180 miles an hour, gets about three quarters down that, and the law of gravity now ceases to exist, and the law of aerodynamics takes over. He puts his flaps down, he gets the right speed, he gets the right end of the wind, and up he goes. Now, the law of gravity held him on the ground, but once the law law of aerodynamics took over, then the law of gravity ceases to exist. The moment he runs out of grass, the law of aer- aer- aerodynamics takes, ceases, and gravity takes over again, see? We have what we call the law of thermodynamics, two of them. Everything in this universe is based on those two, hands down. You have the law of gravity, as I said, law of aerodynamics. You have laws in science. We just saw last week that, that big meteor that almost hit the planet come by 17,000 miles. You know how that thing worked. That thing works on a law system out there out of the Orton. Uh, uh, belt out there on the other side between, uh, on the other side of, of the planet of Jupiter. It all works through the laws of science. There's laws of nature, all kinds of laws in the Bible. Uh, yeah, there are some of you, la- there's laws in everything we do in life. Some of you men last week learned the law of Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, you did. And it wasn't pretty. Many of you learned that lesson the hard way. And I put all these things together over the years of dealing with people. And I, when it comes to all these laws, law of Valentine's Day has five partitions to it. You never want to miss it. First of all, don't forget it. February 14th. Remember, the second law of Valentine's Day is no candy. Men buy candy for the wives because men want to eat the candy because they know their wives won't eat it. Not a good move. Flowers are Okay but don't get him at Knob Town where she knows you got two dozen for nine dollars. Don't do it there. There's a law. You're laughing but you screw them up and you'll find out. Dinner's a wonderful idea but not at McDonald's. You don't want to find yourself filing this law standing at McDonald's on Valentine's Day and then nuzzling down next to her and says, honey, it's a special day. Supersize whatever you want. That's not where you want to go. Not how it works. Lingerie can be a great thing, but don't buy it at Walmart. And if you do find a place to buy it, don't get the (laughs) one-size-fits-all. That's not a good move either. (laughs) That's not... I think one of them big teddy bears would be great. You see them on television every Valentine's Day? Man, I want a sucker six foot tall. He's taller than I am. Let him get a job and pay the bills. That's, that's, but those are laws, you see. There's laws in everything we do. I don't have time to give you the laws of Christmas and Thanksgiving, but there's laws to all of them. But since Valentine's Day was last week, now learn those things. You know, not want to learn those things. But it, it, it's an incredible concept. If people, God's people, would learn to obey these laws life would be much better for them. Especially this one here on sowing and reaping. Now, folks, I want, especially for you folks in the people ministry and for anybody in general, uh, when it comes to this law, there's four, four concepts you want to get. And boy, they're incredible. And you need to see and understand them. I want to tell you something, folks. There's not a day goes by in my week. There's not a day in my week that goes by that I don't see this, have to deal with this in people's lives to some aspect. And many of you today, bless your hearts and I love you. Many of you today have done phenomenal things in your life from where you came from. I have the utmost respect for you. I have the utmost love for you. I, I think you're trophies of God's grace. And I know many of you have come through some really tough situations. Many times your marriages were on the brink. I told a guy one time, you know what? If you're going to get a, if your marriage on that clock, if your marriage divorce or your breakup of your marriage happened at twelve midnight, you're right now at eleven fifty eight. There's been some tragedies, and yet in many cases you've done everything you needed to do, and you've you've turned your life around, you've turned your families around, your marriage around, your children around, or your personal life around. But I'm telling you right now. Almost in every scenario and the people that you're going to work with, especially if you get into the turnaround, you want to know this. You're going to realize that the people are in the problems they're in because very simply and basically they have violated this principle of sowing and reaping. And many of you, the struggles that you've had in your marriage or your family or your children or your personal lives are nothing more than a violation of this law with its disastrous consequences. It's real simple. Sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And in God's law, it's the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says, and it's so basic and simple. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life eternal. How much easier does it get? There's an automatic law in your life of sowing and reaping. When you sow your wild oats, you don't then pray for crop failure. It doesn't work that way. I used to hear Mel Sabaka talk about his own life. And he used to talk about how that he was a young man that, that he lived a careless life and did whatever he wanted to do and lived a riotous life. And he, he likened it to he likened it to going down and loading up ships with all the wild things we did and all the things that we happened and all the bad things we did. And he says, I'd fill up those ships and then I'd send those ships out and then I'd get down there and I'd do some more and I'd fill that ship up and I'd send it out and I filled up 10 or 20 ships and sent them all out when I was 20, and 30 and then at 40 45 and 50 you know what happens those ships come back and just as you loaded them now you got to unload them sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him and be not deceived God is not mocked what's a man soweth, if that will he also reap you know there's one truth in life brother and when it comes to God and I have settled this one a long time ago And uh, I'm telling you, there's one truth that's true about God in life that I can attest to the fact and I would tell anybody, any place it's across the board to anybody is simply this. We all get what we deserve. When something happens in my life, good or bad, I never whine about it. I never complain about it. I never mope around about it. You know why? Because compared to what God had for me in eternity of burning in a lake of fire, compared to what I deserve to get. I understand that in this life with its imperfections and my stupidity, there's going to be things that we all do. And you know what? I can rest in the fact that when it's God's hand in my life, whatever hand he deals me, I'll play it and never complain about it. You know why? <laughs> because I know we get what we, I get what I deserve. And the quicker you grasp that concept, the better off you're going to be in life. You really are. We always get what we deserve. In most cases, you know what? In most cases, when you try to do what's right and you really want to turn your life around, you don't get what you deserve, even though you deserve to get it. God is the great a shock absorber of life when you want to turn your life around. He makes some of those ships sink while they're out there and they never make it back to port. But you'll have to load, unload some of them. I've, I've had people over the years in my ministry, you know, and I, and I, and I just, I, I deal with it all and just in stride. I've had people over the years in my ministry come to my church and and be part of it and get Bible truth and learn the scriptures and get the word of God laid out like they'd never had it before. But the problem with them, you see, is they're selfish people. The problem is they're worldly people. The problem is they're foolish people. They're bad people. They're all about themselves people. And they never do a thing. All they do is take from God. And at some point, they get mad at truth and they leave and, 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 and try to find another church. And you know what? I got one gal, and I wasn't going to say her name, but you all would know who she is because just about every lady in this church worked with her. And this, work, this woman, never married, uh, she she complained about everything. She I don't care what she started to do. It would wind up being a problem because she just was all about herself. And she'd been in and out of my ministry for 35, 40 years. I could, the only way I knew I could get rid of her was kill her, and that's against the law, and I know I couldn't do that. But I'll tell you what, whatever she touched, it wielded. Whatever she got close to, it got messed up. And, I'm, and, I, and, I, and, I, and so finally one time, about what, I don't know, two or three years ago, she got mad about volleyball. It was volleyball season. She got mad about something, you know, and and, and, went, and coming back to church, which, whew, what a relief that was. <clears throat> anyway, i get a letter from her eight months ago. Now, when this lady left, she ripped me up one side, down the other. Ripped all you ladies up that were helping her every day, and we were the baddest people on the earth. You're just following a man, and this is some demon crazy thing. But that's just where her mindset is, you see. And so she writes me a letter about eight months ago, and no, no apology for anything. She just wanted to know, hey Bob, how you doing? So, you know, I wanted to respond. I've been doing fine for the last eight months. What's the point? And she's telling me, she says, you know what? She says, I just can't find another church. And she sort of listed her. You know what? In two years' time, you know where she'd been? She'd been to six churches. She went to this church, didn't like it, went to this church, didn't like it, went to this church, didn't like it. You know what she all said? She all said the same thing. They don't teach the Bible, they don't give anything, they don't believe the Bible, they don't do anything. No, no. You had a church that did, but you didn't want to be here. You didn't want to submit yourself. So you know what? You got mad over truth, and now you're the you talk about the walking dead cleon, this is it. She walks from church to church. Never find a thing. You know what I think about that? I think you get what you deserve. You know what God will do? God will give you a church and give you what you want, and then you get your nose better to join because you don't want to do what's right. You know what God will do? God will give you a church just like you are. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And of course, most people, well, every child you get some people with some character and some quality, but most people, you know, they know they're wrong. They know they made a mistake. And they're not going to do anything. They're just going to keep on walking dead. And they all want the same thing, flesh. I'm telling you. I've had people come to my church, come to my ministry, get the Bible, and then get their nose bent out of joint about something. And then you know what? They go to some big dead church, some big mausoleum. They go to some big place where they have no Bible, no preaching. It's just a bunch of marshmallow stuff. And they sit there and they try to pretend it's wonderful. They'll talk about all the music program, the praise music. Oh, they'll talk about the big building. Everything but the Bible they don't have. And now they're miserable. They're stuck. And you know what I say to it? We all get what we deserve. What I say to it. That's what that's the way life is. That's how I look at it, man. I mean, I, I just I, I never I never complain about it. But it, bad in my life, I just know. Hey, it didn't. Somebody said uh, I like uh, Dave Ramsey. When somebody says how you doing, he always says better than I deserve. Boy, that's the truth. Now, not only now, not only do you reap what you sow. You always reap more than you sow. Bad choices in life will kill you. In a life of sin, with all of its disasters, this is what we call the, in counseling the compounding effect. I read in the Kansas City Star a couple of weeks ago about those two prostitutes that was killed up in the Northland. One of them 40, one of them 25 or 26. And um, I was reading that story, and, I, and one of the mom, the mom of the 25-year-old uh, was interviewed, and, and I, when, she, when she read it, when she started talking, I thought to myself, my goodness, this is exactly, this is exactly, this is exactly what I see every day of my life. That mom said, now keep in mind that she was found half nude, buried, choked, overdosed of drugs up in a field someplace. So was the other 40-year-old. But the mom said about this little 25-year-old girl, it was her daughter. She says, you know what? She says, I don't understand. She says that when she was a teenager, she went to church. She was involved in her youth group. And then the mother began to say it, and boy, it became so clear. You know what she said? But then she said, here it comes. Then she got with the wrong crowd. The wrong crowd will always kill you. Then she started smoking. Then she started drinking. Then she went to marijuana. Then she went to heroin. Then she got hooked on crack cocaine. Then her addiction forced her into prostitution on the streets of Independence Avenue. And then at 25, she wound up dead in the field. See how it compounds? Sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. Here's a girl who was in church, part of the youth group. Just like some of you in church, carrying your Bibles. But the wrong crowd comes in. The wrong crowd comes in. And when the wrong crowd comes in, it begins to go downhill. You get the smoking. You get the drinking. You get the marijuana. You get the heroin. You get the crack. You get all the way down the line. And some of you say, well, I'll never do that, and I'll never wind up in the field. No, you probably won't, but you're just as dead spiritually as she is dead physically. Sin never leaves a man better than it finds him. I've seen people married five and six times in life. What a mess. What a compounding mess. I think the record of our church is one gal was married for seven times. Boy, she knew the number was seven with perfection, but it didn't work out on that one either. I've seen families completely destroyed by this compounding effect. I've done marriages where there's been so many in laws and ex laws that I don't even know whose mother's who. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're laughing. I'm sitting there. I'm saying, I want to say, bring the mother down. And I say to myself, which one? I mean, you got four different mothers, three different fathers. I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And then it's like my fault because I can't figure it out. I've seen guys or a gal sometimes go through two or three bad marriages, have kids by all of them, and sometimes they have kids and not married to any of them. And they finally try to settle down and a man wants to get his life together. And you know what? He's facing, I know one guy in particular I talked about years ago, he was facing, after he wanted to settle down, he wanted to get his life back down, he made a mess. But every month he's facing $1,500 in child support for kids he don't even have anymore, for a wife he's not even married to. It compounds. You always reap more than you sow. And add to that the exes the fight over the kids and the property. Now you got a new wife and she's a sweetheart wife you want to make out, but she's got to go get a second job so you can pay your ex-wife her child support. How long do you think that's going to work for you? In other words, before you pay one bill, before you do one thing, before you spend one dime on yourself and your family every month for the next 18, 20 years of your life, $1,500 goes to somebody else and you start $1,500 in a hole every month. It compounds, brother. Not only do you you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow. Oh, it always goes that way. This law has a compounding addendum to it. And add to that, and like I said, and add to that the bills, the car payment, the house payment, your medical insurance, all the things that your kids need after the $1,500 is paid. Yeah, you, brother, I'll tell you what. I've seen it and could tell you some horror stories. I've seen people who couldn't afford a house that they just had to have a house because it was some big status symbol and they wanted to have a big house. And you know what? Well, they had no more ability to pay for it than they could. And then the rest of their life whining and squawking about we don't have enough money. Well, I wonder why. I've had people come into this church and say, we don't have, we don't have any food. We don't have any of that. And you go back and investigate. No, because you charged $2,800 for Christmas on your credit cards and you got this going and you bought this thing here and bought that over there that you didn't need. And now you want to come to us for food. That's how it works. That's how it works. Eat your big screen TV. Well, say, I cut my hand and I'm bleeding. I don't have any money to go to the hospital. Cut your TV open. It's plasma. Huh? Was that a good one? You'll be using that on the floor tomorrow, won't you? I know you will. You reap more than you sow. And you know what? It isn't done there. But because the time your kids hit 15, 16, 17 years old, you know what? It starts all over again. Because you now you have the degeneration of the generation that that generation of kids is worse than the last. And now you've got five kids and it starts all over again. And it's an amusement park that never ends. See it all the time. See it all the time. Everyone ever leaves a man better than it finds him. You reap what you sow, and you reap more than you sow. I've seen people with credit card debt, $67, $75,000. When you go back and look at that, it, it was stupid stuff that they didn't need. I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you. I mean, it's easy. It's, it's that old thing, short term and long term. But I know, I know, I got a credit card. I know how easy it is to see something you can't live without. Hey, you walk up there and it's so easy just to swipe that card and you get to take it home. But at the end of the month, it comes in. Right. Got to pay for it sometime. Well, we don't even do that anymore. We just file bankruptcy. This can be a good thing. Now, not only do you reap what you sow, not only do you reap more than you sow, but I'll tell you something else, friends. You reap according to how you sow. Wise man and foolish man. The wise man shows the word of God. The foolish man shows the discord. There's only two types of sowing in the Bible. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. Only two types of sowing in the Bible. There's a sowing of the word of God in Matthew chapter 13 and there's a showing of the discord among the brethren in Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16. Six things that God hates and the seventh makes it an abomination, and it's the one that God's people do the most, showing discord among the brethren. You know, words are very powerful. I'm sure you know that. Proverbs talks about that, and we'll see that when we get into the book of Proverbs. But words are very powerful. Words have only one of two effects. There's no neutral words in that life, and really. Words only have two effects. Wools, a wise man uses words as tools to build people. That's what he does. That's what I'm doing this morning. It's what I do one-on-one. That's why I don't care what stupid things you've done in your life. I don't care where you've come from in your life. I don't care about that. All I care about is where you want to go from here. And I'll give you good, wholesome words, good, sound doctrine to help you get your life where you want it to go. Because the job of a Christian is to use wholesome words, good words, God's Word to build people. But it's also... Words can become a weapon to destroy people. And that's the foolish man. Words are like a gun. We've got this big gun debate going on in the, in the world today. Police can't protect you, nobody can protect you, but they don't want you to be able to protect yourself. But they all think guns are bad. Guns are bad. Guns are bad. Guns are bad. Well, booze is bad. Drugs are bad. It's kind of ironic that President Obama last week went down to Chicago, which has got the worst crime murder rate in all the planet, was in there talking about gun control. We need to get better background checking need to get to this. Chicago's got the greatest, strictest gun laws on the planet. Doesn't do a thing. You want to cut down crime? I'll tell you how you cut down crime. You want to cut down murder? I'll tell you. Put in capital punishment again and make it public. Oh, you're too rough for me. Yeah, I am, sweetie. Good worker, Bob, rougher man than you. You know, there was a time, and that's what they did. Everybody went down to the courthouse and, and saw somebody get hung. I mean, that's, it was a deterrent. Somebody said, well, it doesn't deter her crime. Well, I'll tell you what, you get your kids growing up, and they see somebody out there getting executed. I think they ought to put them in an electric chair and watch and then put it on TV. You've got a lot of reality other reality shows. You've got your wedding. you got this. you got that. you got got this over here. Put that on. Reality TV. Execution. And you know what? <laughs> Words are like an elevator. They'll either take you up or they'll take you down. And just like an elevator, you get to push the buttons, which way it goes. That's why when I get in an elevator, somebody says, What floor do you want us to get out of there? I'll push my own button. <laughs> Might send me the wrong way. Don't let anybody in your life ever send you a way you don't want to go. You push your own buttons. You get to choose which way it goes. Just like the sowing in your life. You can either honor God with your words or you can dishonor God. You can be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. But you don't only just reap more than you sow. You reap according to how you sow. And then the fourth one. In some cases, you might not reap it all down here, but when you stand before God. I have an old favorite story I've told for Hundred years into my old preaching days when I was doing the circuit and preaching revivals. I used to use this story about an old evangelist that was going through the Midwest and he was preaching in a town and, and all the people were coming out and people were getting saved. And the old uh, guy who owned the town, you know, and millionaire and owned everybody's land and one saved, didn't care about God. All he wanted was his barn being full and all that stuff. And he ripped people off and he got his wealth by cheating other people. He came, he was a very high status in the community. So he came to the church every night. But the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist knew that he wasn't getting through to him. He came every night, five, six, seven nights in a row. And that boy didn't budge. I right? mean, people were coming around him getting saved and the Holy Spirit came down. That old boy sat back there with all of his money, with all of his farms and all of his barns and all of his cattle and all of his horses and all of his everything he had and that was what was important to him. On the last night at the end of the sermon that man started to walk down toward there after the sermon was over and wanted to shake the preacher's hand. The preacher knew what was coming and he had a little smirk on his face and he pulled the preacher aside and said preacher I said I've come every night and heard you preach. He said I want you to know he says I, I, I like you and I like what you say and I like how you helped our town but it doesn't work for me. He says, your message may be good for these people but it doesn't work for me. The preacher said how's that? And he said, well, preacher, he says, let me ask you a question. You preached all this week about God's judgment and God coming down and doing all the things. He says, I'm an unsaved man. I don't want to believe in God. I don't even think I do believe in God. And he had all these people coming down here that crying and whining and getting saved. They got nothing. And I sit up there on the hill in my house. It's just 10 times bigger than anybody's house here. My barns are full. It's September and I've got my grain in and my fruit in and my farms in and my cattle in. And he says, not one thing bad's happened to me. And he says, now, how do you explain that after you preached all this week? And the preacher didn't even miss a beat. He just kneeled down, looked in his face and said, I'll tell you how it is. God don't settle accounts in September. You'll settle later. Better be careful with this idea that you call yourself a Christian. You can live, live your life any way you want to and do what you want to do and nothing ever happens. That Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that God chastens every son whom he receiveth. Be careful with that. Sometimes God takes care of the judgment seat of Christ. If you're an unsaved man, he'll let you live your life. You know what I think? Personal opinion. I think it's the most tragic thing in the world if you are saved and you live your life the way you want to do it, drink what you want to drink, smoke what you want to smoke, go where you want to go and flaunt God and what he did for you. I think it's the most horrendous thing in the world and the funniest thing in the world that you go through your whole life and God doesn't come down and whack you. It's either one of two things. Either you're not really saved and you just think you are, and maybe you are saved, but if you are saved, you know what it is? God doesn't care enough about you to come down and whack you. He knows you're worthless. Now that would bother me As a child of God, you sow, and your reward is based on what you sow, and you reap what you sow, and it'll be based on your sowing. Your quality of life, the blessings of God, will be based on your sowing. Your family and its success will be based on that sowing. It, the secret to a happy, full, content, prosperous life filled with joy and family all based on God's word. It's real simple. It's in your hymnal on page 420. If you want success, if you want a full contentment, if you want prosperity in your life, page 47 in your hymnal. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontime and the dewy eve, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, never fearing clouds, nor winter's chilly breeze, and by and by the harvest, And the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. It's in sowing, teaching your family to sow. And in what they sow, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. Life is not complicated. Life is really simple. You know, I want to close with this. life, wise man and foolish man, but your life and my life is simply like the money you have in your wallet, the money you have in your pocket. It's your money. You can spend it any way you choose to, but you only get to spend it once. And in your life, yes, it's yours. And you can spend your life any way you choose to. But only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Every head bowed and every eye closed.